From CPR News, it's Colorado Matters. When cities conduct homeless sweeps to clean up parks and riverbanks, where do the people end up? I'm passing through where I'm going, but I just haven't got place yet, so it's kind of difficult, so I'm kind of passing through. Then Colorado teachers become the students, learning how to create inclusive classrooms. They want to do right by kids, and they're so afraid of saying the wrong thing or with good intentions having a lesson land in harmful ways on a student who identifies as LGBTQ. Plus, when does a hairstyle become a referendum on race, societal norms, and self-worth? A Denver author shares her coming of age through the prism of hair. And a bluegrass reunion in Colorado more than a decade in the making. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. There's a steep wooded bank along the South Platte River in Inglewood, which until earlier this month was home to more than 100 people who didn't have one. Police cleared the encampment in early June to address immediate concerns about safety and sanitation, but it did not address the underlying problems of homelessness. Donna Bryson is housing and hunger reporter for Denverite. Hi, Donna. Hi. One of the first questions after a homeless sweep like this is, where do the people end up? You kept up with a man named Walt Collins. You tracked him down a few days after the homeless were cleared out, resting in the shrubs by the river. And you two picked up what was clearly an ongoing conversation. Well, Is all your stuff safe? Your blankets, your everything safe? I got, I got them with me. That's all I got right there. I mean, we just left there with no tent or nothing. I guess that's, well, yeah, that's illegal in a way unless we're passing through. I'm passing through where I'm going, but... I just haven't got place yet, so it's kind of difficult, so I'm kind of passing through. Said you hadn't gotten much sleep in the last couple of days. Did you get much sleep last night? This morning? Sun. A couple of hours. The sun came out, and you move a couple of spots because the sun's pretty hot. Then you have to give us, you know, we're in the shade. We're just laid right here, you know. Actually, like, we're laid right in there. It's not sleeping bag. It's not too bad, you know. The raccoons are all, they're all right. There's a couple of them. So you're up all night? I was up till pretty late, but I don't have a phone. I don't know what time it was. I went to sleep and woke up, you know, when the sun was coming up or whatever. It started getting hot and we wrote a couple times and I made, made some uh, a dip, you know, like tomato and onion and bell pepper and uh, diced onions and uh, some, take the, the tortilla chips. He told you, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm passing through. What was one of the last people to leave Inglewood? What were some of the stressors that made it hard for him to leave? Well, the stuff. <laughs> people have a lot of things that they've collected that make it possible to, to camp. They've got tents and blankets and they've got solar cells that they use to charge cell phones. They've got big batteries to charge those cell phones. They've got bicycles. It's just, imagine if you had to take your whole household and move it in two weeks and you didn't know where you were going to move it. That's that's exactly the situation that people like Walt are in. And it's too much to just carry with him as he goes to find a new place. Too much to carry in one trip, too much to carry in several trips. I think what happens is people end up abandoning things, losing things, and that certainly happened to Walt. And it sounds like you're saying this is typical of people dealing with homelessness after a sweep like this? It's typical. It's typical of living in homelessness. I think day to day, people are worried about what they're going to do with their belongings. A lot of people who are living in homelessness are working. So what do you do with your entire household? That's what it is, your household possessions while you're at work all day. Uh, there's not even an answer for that in many shelters. You know, that's, I think shelters are starting to learn that they need lockers, they need uh, day shelters, they need people need an ability to, to be somewhere during the day as well as at night, and they need an ability to keep their stuff somewhere safe during the day. 
And Denver has done these so-called homeless sweeps before. It's banned urban camping. The city of Centennial, which is near Inglewood, is considering an ordinance to do the same. Based on your reporting, what do you think is behind these efforts? I think homelessness and poverty in the suburbs is not new, but I think the realization that that, that it's a that it's an issue in the suburbs is new. And not everyone is responding by cracking down, by considering things like camping bans or tightening the laws they have that would keep people from trespassing or from hanging out on the riverbank. Uh, there are, I'm also seeing moves to address the, the underlying issues, moves to address the issues of affordable housing, mm. <laughs> moves to address the issues of, of shelters in the, in the suburbs, because as we start to realize that it's not just an urban problem. And the city of Denver recently settled a class action lawsuit about the way it conducts its sweeps. Uh, the suit represented all people experiencing homelessness in the city. Briefly, what's the story behind that case and where does it stand? Well, the, the group that brought that suit, Denver Homeless Out Loud, is the same group that uh, some listeners might recall pushed for the end to the camping ban. So they were challenging in this suit how the camping ban was carried out, as you pointed out, what happens to people's stuff when, when they when they are asked to move along. Uh, and the settlement, they've agreed to a settlement, the city and and the uh, people who brought the suit, which included $5,000 payments to the, to the couple of people who were named in the suit. But more broadly, it was a class action suit. And uh, the city has agreed to things like giving notice, which they do, but now it's it's kind of enshrined in this settlement. The city has also agreed to, to uh, install lockers that people can use to keep their stuff in during the day. Uh, the city has taken steps to make it easier for people to get showers. You know, they are they are addressing some of the uh, the situation of people who are camping out. And moving back to that Inglewood sweep, why did Inglewood initially announce that it would clear the camps along the South Platte? I should point out that Inglewood does not have a camping ban, so they were they were enacting a ban, a curfew, more or less on 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 using the banks of the South Platte. They were concerned about the conditions. They were concerned about the hygienic conditions. They were con- concerned about what was happening to the river because people were using it to, to defecate, to urinate. Uh, and they were also concerned about safety. There had been, as a fight, a knife fight among people living in homelessness in one of those camps. And they and that's, those are the reasons the city raised when they moved in. And you mentioned that in Denver, they're starting, because of this lawsuit, they have to give people notice. But in Inglewood, they also gave people a couple of weeks notice that they need to move. They set June 4th as a deadline. And you went to the South Platte on June 4th. What did you see? Well, one thing I, my, one person I spoke to that day was the chief of Inglewood police who said, you know, we talked about this giving notice and also they uh, made some arrangements for to help people store their stuff. And the chief of police said, we learned from others' lessons. And I think he was talking about Denver's lessons for sure. What I saw that day were probably about half the people who had been there in, in May when they first got word that they were going to be clean, cleared out. And uh, people bringing their stuff up from the banks, which was a little bit down from the river, and putting them along the side of the road. Some of them were were carting it away, you know, uh, piling their stuff up on carts or onto their bicycles and moving that day. Some people just seemed to not know what to do, uh, to kind of moving their stuff off the riverbanks and not knowing what would happen from then. I saw a pile of stuff with a big tarp over it and a sign from Walt in which he kind of introduced himself and left his phone number and said, this is not trash. Uh, And they called him. And we talked a little bit that day, and it was clear that he didn't know what he was going to do that day. And over the next couple of days, I'm not not sure it became any clearer for him. And the last time you've talked with Walt, where was he? 
he was about 100 feet from the sign that says, Welcome to Inglewood. <laughs> you know, so the, the line between Denver and Inglewood, he was on the Denver side of that sign. Uh, on the riverbank, a uh, little campsite that was surrounded by young trees, and there were several people there. It was hard to keep count because people were moving in and out, but probably a half dozen people were in that new camp with them, and that new camp wasn't very far from the first camp. And were they still along the river, just in a different section? Still along the river and in Denver. Denver does have a camping ban. It's not like people aren't aware of that who are living in homelessness, but the the ban is not uh, I don't know, not always enforced. And then they, they were hoping that they might have a little bit of a respite, a couple of days, maybe weeks, maybe months, who knows, if they were going to give it a try in Denver. And through this, you talked to quite a few organizations that aim to help people experiencing homelessness. Um, what did they tell you about the services that they offered to people who are be- who were being asked to move? Yeah, there were people from an Inglewood group called Changing the Trend, which is kind of a network of service providers in Inglewood. And they were down there with the police officers, with Denver police officers who were kind of helping out Inglewood police officers, with mental health uh, outreach workers who were there as well. And what they could offer was get on a wait list for housing. Uh, Change the Trend also has a program in which they try to match mentors with people living in homelessness because I think they recognize that you have to if you're offering help sometimes you have to keep offering help and so that's one idea and but what they could not offer was housing Mm. and like you're saying that's so important not just for people's housing but also for the things that they own um what kind of help did the people experiencing homelessness who you talked to what kind of help did they say that they'd like to have it's interesting because a lot of people I spoke to on that first day, not just Walt, but lots of people along the river were uh, a little bit skeptical of the help they were being offered. They'd been offered these kinds of things before. They'd been handed leaflets with uh, phone numbers of shelters before, and it never really led anywhere. I remember one leaflet that I saw Walt get handed included, which I thought was very interesting, a, a note about a housing, <laughs> a note about housing. But when I called that agency, they weren't offering housing. Thanks so much for this conversation, Donna. That's Donna Bryson, housing and hunger reporter for Denverite, which now is part of CPR News. You can read stories she's written about the sweep of homeless encampments along the South Platte and Inglewood at denverite.com. Emotions ran high at the Douglas County School Board meeting last night, where parents and students from the STEM School Highlands Ranch spoke for hours to fight for the future of the school, a month after a shooting there. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine was at the meeting. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Avery. What brought out parents and students to this school board meeting? Well, the Douglas County Board of Education had announced it proposed extending the STEM Highlands Ranch School's charter for one year rather than the five years that the school sought. This is a charter school. That means it's independently run public school. So it has to gain approval from the board for operations. And that contract expires June 30th. So board members said given the disruption caused by the shooting, and that was on May 7th, and unspecified questions that they say the school hasn't answered. They wanted the one-year extension. But parents and students who were there saw this as a real slap to the highest-rated school, at least in terms of academic scores, in the district. Here's Heidi Elliott. She's a STEM parent and member of the school's own board. It feels like control. I feel like you'll call it oversight, but it says to us that you don't trust us to take care of our school. It says you can't do it without your involvement. It feels like you're putting STEM on probation as a precursor for something, shutting us down, 
taking us over. Columbine is still standing. Arapaho is still here. They had shooters, and today they're thriving schools. But it feels like you don't believe in us that we can recover. Parents and students uh, took to the podium for more than three hours, and and it was even delayed. Uh, Sometimes they were angry. Sometimes they were tearful. What issues were they raising? People told the board last night that their school needed the support of a longer extension of the contract, both to give stability to students. Um, They also want financial security because they say a short contract could affect the cost of bonds that are used to run the school and also, you know, build a new field house. Here's parent Nicole Churchill-Jones, and she's explaining that a little more. Our school buildings are funded by bonds. Our bond rating can drop, which we still need to buy a building and over the course of buying that building that just going from a five-year charter to a three-year charter could cost five million dollars five million taxpayer dollars five million dollars that goes not to our students but to a bank and and so it's infuriating And on that issue of the school being a unique fit for some children, which a lot of people spoke about, many parents said it super strongly. They said that the school has saved their child and they told stories of their kids who were bullied at other schools or not academically challenged until they came to STEM. Beth Bowen's son had been so bullied at his previous school, he was diagnosed with PTSD. Here she is talking about arriving at STEM. Going back to school into a different school after being bullied was very difficult. Our son had no trust in students, no trust in teachers, and no trust in administrators. At my son's previous school, he had a flimsy student accommodation plan that his teacher did not follow. The principal said it was optional to follow. In contrast, STEM put together a thorough IEP for my child to be successful, and it has been followed. An IEP, that's an individualized education plan, and that goes into place for students with special needs. And she said her son ended up getting the emotional support he needed. It's important to note that many parents of children with special needs spoke positively about the services that their children have received at the school. Yet there were civil rights violations filed against the school. Is that right? Yeah. Over an 18-month period, the school was the subject of six complaints related to classroom accommodations and support for students with learning and emotional issues, and those were brought to either the Federal Office of Civil Rights or the Colorado Department of Education. Some of them ended in a settlement. Some required corrective action. But some parents said that was then, and the school is responding to their children's needs. They also praised the way the school handled the events of that day, the shooting, and they they said it was well-prepared for emergencies. Their kids had drills. Systems were in place. That, that worked to secure the school. So what did the school board do after all that testimony? They made it clear that they did not intend for the one-year contract proposal to be a vote of no confidence in the school. Um, they said that the, the school does have issues to work out, and um, they thought that an extension would let those details get worked out and allow for a longer contract later on. They have this looming June 30th deadline when the current contract expires. What are the issues the school board is concerned about? One board member said she had concerns about the school prior to the shooting, but she didn't specify what those were. She also said new facts have come to light. If you remember in December, an anonymous parent called to warn Douglas County school officials that she feared the school could be the site of a shooting. In the one-year contract extension proposal, the board outlines a number of conditions. They say they want, you know, 
to make sure the requirements for special education educators and mental health providers are, are followed at the school. Um, there are calls for timely completion of safety assessment reports and threat and suicide assessment reports. Some parents, though, they were kind of offended by that. Um, they say, you know, we, we we are doing what we're supposed to be doing. This is a good school. We have high test scores, even in the top 500 in the nation. But the board came back and insisted it wanted to address these concerns before signing any long-term contract. But the board seemed to be swayed by the public in the made in by the concerns that the public made in their comments. Is that right? Yeah, they noted that they were very close to reaching a long-term contract agreement just before the shooting. Uh, board members wanted to reassure the public that they, they do want to reach a long-term solution. And one even said, you know, I, the school I fully anticipate will be operating for another 20 years. Um, so in the discussion after the comments, uh, they agreed they would get back to negotiation in the hopes of finalizing a longer contract before the June 30th deadline. So now they have six business days to work something out. And they held out the option that if the, the schedules didn't allow time to work out the details, they would extend the contract for just one year uh, and then hopefully get to a longer contract. So they're getting back to work on it. Jenny, thank you so much for this update. Thank you. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine reporting on the possible future of STEM School Highlands Ranch, where there was a school shooting last month. A new generation is redefining the meaning of gender identity and sexuality, and many teachers haven't caught up. A two-day conference starting today prepares teachers to navigate topics of gender identity and orientation. Here to talk with us about the conference are Bethy Leonardi and Sarah Staley. Both are researchers and professors of education at the University of Colorado Boulder. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. First, can one of you share the story of a student dealing with gender identity or sexual orientation issues that speaks to the concerns the conference is trying to address? Yeah, I mean, I think the stories that we like to share are stories that um, this work, in which this work has impacted kids who um, have struggled, and I wouldn't say with gender identity or sexual orientation, but specifically in schools because of who they are. We have plenty of stories from teachers who, um, you know, as young as kindergarten, when they read books that are more representative of gender diversity, kids will say, like, that's me. Or, um, you know, there was a story of a third grade student who the assignment was to draw their families. And the third grade student went up to the teacher and kind of tugged on her and said, you know, I have two moms. Is it okay if I uh, draw my family? And you know, saying yes to that kid was, um, you know, a big weight off of off of that student, but also pretty disappointing to know that even in third grade, kids know that, you know, which families are quote unquote considered normal and which ones aren't based on what's in the curriculum. And I think even at the college level, you know, we've had students who um, haven't really talked about gender or sexual diversity at all in their schooling, and they get to college and take courses that take those topics up. And um, I had a student that actually... Uh, dropped my class, and then a couple of years later reached out and said, you know, um, that was the first time I had ever talked about trans identities, and I realized that that was who I was, and it was too much for me. Um, so I think that the 
the stories that we hear are typically stories uh, of data and suicide and depression. Um, but the stories that we also like to share are stories that um, where kids are impacted by educators doing this work. Mm. So tell us a little bit about the purpose of this conference. Who is it for and what will the participants learn? Yeah, so we have a couple of goals uh, in mind for this conference, and it really is to, um, one of the goals is to bring together uh, educators and youth-serving adults from across the state to uh, connect with one another in um, the spirit of community and solidarity, and really to learn more about how to create classrooms and schools and learning environments that are safe and affirming really for all kids, but with a particular emphasis on LGBTQ youth. It's still pretty rare that schools are offering LGBTQ inclusive professional development to teachers. It's rare that university-based teacher education programs are offering that kind of training to pre-service teachers. So another one of our goals is just to create access to educators and youth-serving adults to to learn how to make their uh, practices more inclusive and affirming. So we have over 40 sessions that will be running, and they cover a range of topics from, you know, strategies that you can enact for um, making your elementary or secondary curriculum more inclusive to how to get a gay-straight alliance up and running to policies that build healthier school climates. Why is it important for teachers to pay attention to this topic? What are we seeing in terms of isolation of LGBTQ youth and mental health issues? I know we touched on it briefly earlier. Yeah, so in Colorado, um, Quality Standard 2 of the teacher effectiveness legislation actually requires that teachers establish safe, inclusive, and respectful learning environments for a diverse population of students. So first, it's important because it's part of what it means to be an educator in Colorado. It's a law. Beyond that, it's important to pay attention to who students are, their identities, um, their lived experiences in school and beyond. This work impacts how students come to understand themselves and affects what they believe about themselves. Are they part of the fabric at school or are they different or not deserving of attention or acknowledgement? Um, and one thing I want to mention is that the focus, you know, seems to always remain on bullying and isolation and mental health. And those are important to think about, of course, but we know that um, those are symptoms of a larger issue, which has been the, rel- uh, the relative erasure of LGBTQ identities in schools. And um, I think the new civics bill actually speaks back to the, the actual context of school. And um, there have been a lot of voices, minoritized voices missing from education and um, I think we need to kind of ask the question differently sometimes and, and ask, like, what are, the, what are the contexts of education and why are those contexts serving some kids and not other kids? Bethy Leonardi and Sarah Staley, co-founders of the LGBTQ Inclusive Schools Conference, which begins today in Boulder. When we come back, what is heteronormativity and what message does that send to students? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committee. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill.
Let's get back to my conversation now with the co-founders of the LGBTQ Inclusive School Conference. It begins today in Boulder, focusing on ways to make Colorado classrooms welcoming to all students. One word that's shaping the conversation, heteronormative. What do you mean by a heteronormative classroom? What are kids telling you about what it's like when they don't see LGBTQ people in the curriculum? So heteronormativity is a big word that uh, is really important to understand in this conversation. And we know from lots of research that kind of the default setting of schools is heteronormativity. So we like to break that word down and explain it to folks as kind of this really powerful and pervasive belief system that operates in our culture. And it, it operates on the assumption that everyone is straight, that straight is quote unquote normal, and that anything that falls outside of that norm is kind of marked different, abnormal, or weird. You know, one of the researchers in our field describes heteronormativity as kind of like the air we breathe. So it's operating all around us all of the time. And most of the time, especially if we fall into that category of what counts as normal, if we identify as heterosexual, we take it for granted as just the way things are. So when we work with educators, we do a lot of practicing of growing awareness of how heteronormativity functions in schools. So kind of to go back to Bethy's example earlier, if a kindergarten teacher always teaches a unit on families and the, the books that she reads to her students always depict families as heterosexual couples. That's kind of a taken-for-granted heteronormative practice that that she might not understand she's enacting until she has some awareness of, of who that's leaving out. So, you know, we have lots of statistics and anecdotes from students that describe how they feel when they don't see themselves reflected in those, you know, what counts as normal practices of curricular inclusion in schools. Um, but something that we hear a lot from from the young people that we work with is that when their teachers do break the heteronormative pattern and do talk about LGBTQ people in the curriculum, they often, I mean, it's like the biggest deal. Um, it's kind of these days from school that they remember um, for, you know, they're, they're seen for the first time ever. And that's that's pretty big. And what are some simple tips that teachers can use at the beginning of the year to make their classrooms more inclusive? You know, in the beginning of the year, uh, a lot of teachers are having conversations around classroom culture, classroom climate, what it means to be safe in the classroom. And a lot of times teachers will hang safe zone signs. We encourage teachers to bring those signs and bring that conversation explicitly into what you're talking about with students in the first week or two of school. Have a conversation with students around what it means to be safe. Um, What are the agreements that we have with each other around how we protect our classroom as safe? Um, Unpack what the safe zone sign involves, the different identity markers that it includes, and why those are important, why those are needed on a a safe zone uh, poster. And then if you're working with younger kids, we've had um, teachers ask their students after a conversation around, you know, how do we protect our classroom as a safe space, they design their own safe zone poster. And every kid gets a square and gets to draw what that safe zone looks like to them, what that means to them, and then sign it. And that's kind of the the contract that they have with each other from day one that they can always go back to um, as the year moves on. And I think that sets up the um, sort of the course for the year with regard to curriculum. So you know, in the beginning of the year, showing students your syllabus, if you're in elementary schools and you have a parent night, you know, getting out in front of things and saying, like, this is what we're about. This is what being a teacher in Colorado is about. Um, we're going to talk about different relationships. We're going to talk about different identities. Um, we're going to talk to talk about equality so that you're not, 
you know, asking permission, but you're taking ownership of um, just what students deserve to learn in school. So what I'm hearing are really involving students and parents in these discussions from the ground level. Our education reporter, Jenny Brundine, last year reported on some teachers who get into discussions about gender identity and different class projects around identity. Some people might say, mm, conversations about gender identity in a classroom could be risky. What if students don't want to go there? Yeah, we love when people ask that question, actually, because it just takes a moment for them to realize that from day one in schools, we're talking about gender and we're talking about relationships. They just don't recognize that LGBTQ people are part of gender and part of relationships. And so we like to use this example, you know, in elementary school, as as Sarah said, you know, you'll talk about families. And then when you bring in a family with two moms or two dads, people are kind of like, is this really appropriate? You know, and you have to sort of educate people and and make, make them realize that we're talking about families all the time and we're talking about relationships all the time. And so we really can't do school without talking about gender. I think what people are, are, are really saying is, like, we're uncomfortable with gender diversity, queer identities. Can these conversations sometimes land poorly and actually end up hurting students and teachers that the teachers are trying to help feel more included? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, that's one of the biggest fears that we hear expressed by teachers. You know, the teachers we work with, and we've worked with over 6,000 educators at this point, they want to do right by kids. And they're so afraid of saying the wrong thing or with good intentions, having a lesson land in harmful ways on a student who identifies as LGBTQ. And so we encourage teachers to really move through that fear to name it and to not get stuck in it, but also to think thoughtfully about, um, you know, what, what are your goals? You know, if you're, if you're teaching an inclusive curriculum, let's say you're an elementary teacher and you want to bring in a book uh, to your classroom that features a, a character who identifies as transgender, non-binary, think carefully about, um, you know, why you want to read, what's what's your goal in reading that text, and who are the students in your classroom? Um, if you have one student who identifies as transgender, um, how is that going to land for that student? Is that going to out them? Is it going to um, be uncomfortable for them? Or is it going to create an opportunity for them to share a little bit about their, uh, their story? Um, checking in with students to make sure that you're on the same page before you teach the lesson is always wise. Yeah, and so an an example, um, because we do talk about, and what we're learning in our research too, it's, you know, there's a lot of talk about inclusion and inclusive practices, and we really are thinking a lot right now about pedagogy and the way that people teach and the conversations that they start and the questions that they ask as as central to, um, and not to be disconnected from this idea of inclusion. And so one of the examples um, that that we see a lot is, you know, in elementary schools, Teachers will bring in stories about gender diversity, and so a typical or a common one is that there's a, a little boy who wears a dress to school, and the trope that continues to be perpetuated in books like that, the boy wears a dress to school and then he gets bullied, and so, and the conversation is a lot around empathy. Like, would we accept so-and-so for wearing the dress? And empathy is an important thing to teach, but it also keeps that kid as the different kid and keeps the rest of the people as quote-unquote normal. And so we like to encourage teachers to kind of flip the conversation. And um, we use this framing of um, why would you say no to someone's yes? So in the book, that dress is a yes, and the characters are saying no. And so if we have a conversation with kids about why people say no to someone's yes, then the conversation kind of shifts and, and 
it's not about who's normal and who's different. It's about why people's yeses bother us so much, which I think is uh, an important life lesson even for adults to kind of think about. Bethy, Sarah, thank you so much for this conversation. Yeah, thank you for giving it attention. Yeah, thanks for having us. Bethy Leonardi and Sarah Staley are the co-founders of the LGBTQ Inclusive Schools Conference, which begins today in Boulder. They're both researchers and professors of education at CU Boulder. When is hair more than just curly or straight, but rather a referendum on race, societal norms, and self-worth? To answer that question, you could probably ask any African-American woman. That complex discussion, as well as some of her personal coming-of-age experiences, are captured in a new graphic novel, Hot Comb, a series of short stories written and illustrated by Denver resident Ebony Flowers. Ebony, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I understand the idea for the book came while you were working on your doctoral dissertation, but you were also inspired by watching hair videos on YouTube. Yes, I was. So um, making or writing a uh, dissertation can be very stressful. So one way, uh, one thing I did to relieve stress was to watch YouTube videos um, put out by black women who specifically focused on their hair. And most of them, um, they did videos about um, what to do with their natural hair because uh, at some point they did what is called the big chop so they cut off all of their perm and started to grow their hair out naturally and so they put out these videos to um, show people how they took care of their hair and um, what products they used and stuff and so I was like fascinated by all, with all this even though at the time I still had a texturizer in my hair um, <clears throat> anyway uh, a lot of them started talking about their own um, hair journey and and part of that was like their first perm and their stories um, I realized were a little different from my experience with my first perm hmm. so I started to draw that out and I just decided to make a comic about it. And those videos they featured something that called the natural hair community. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that as a community. Yeah that's a, a question I guess that's a contested word com- a natural hair community um, because it it um alludes to some kind of cohesiveness and um, amongst people. And I, I, I like the idea that there is a, a community out there of, of black women who are celebrating the hair that grows out of their head without any kind of permanent um, manipulation. Um, but with also within that community, there's some, um, there's some people who feel as though there's still hair texture discrimination. So there's still mm-hmm. um, like people who have looser curls and other people get more attention and maybe more sponsorship on YouTube. And there's um, and viewership on YouTube. And there's um, a lot of backlash about that. And, and um, people with kinkier textures feel as though they are being ignored in mainstream media and then also in on YouTube. So and is that where the idea of good hair comes in? Um, well, good hair, that term has been around for a while. So my grandparents used that term and my parents used that term um, to describe uh, uh, different, uh, my cousins and my, and my hair. Um, um, and so it's a term to to distinguish between black people who have looser 
um, curls or straighter hair than those who who don't. So um, there used to be a test, like a pencil test. So if you you put a pencil in your hair and it it stays, you then you don't have good hair. But if the pencil falls through, then your hair is quote unquote good hair. Oh wow! Um, I don't think people do that anymore, but. That is a thing I heard my grandmother talk about. And this idea of hair as a gateway to acceptance, like you said, it's controversial. Did you write the book to foster those kinds of conversations? I wrote the book for uh, black women um, in general, and I wrote it so that um, black women could see themselves in stories, in everyday stories about uh, just trying to live um while you have your you have this physical outward appearance that uh society as a whole may not ex- readily accept um so that's that was my primary reason for writing it and you say that black women's hair it's often policed what does that mean well our hair our hair can't just be as it is and so um, it's more than just the hair that grows out of our scalp Uh, our hair is policed in the sense that when I walk down the streets for example it's not uncommon for someone to make a comment about my hair and whether it's a good comment or something that's uh, a little bit of a microaggression you know, that's to be um, for the person who interprets it. But um, I can't just walk down the street and not have my hair commented upon and whether or not... sharing, like, what something somebody might say? Well, there, it's in the book. So um, there, for example, there was one I wrote about Toronto. So I was in Toronto last year, and um, in my mind I had this idea that Toronto was this... Um, uh, safe space for black and brown people because it's, so, it's such a multicultural um, city. And so I wore hair wraps there, not thinking twice about it. And um, I had a lot of negative comments um, from people uh, with my, when I, whenever I wore my hair wrap. And in the book, I mentioned this one time I was on the subway and a woman came up to me and started asking me about um, my ethnicity because of my hair wrap. And so she was asking me if I was Muslim and trying to get around, like, why is my hair covered up kind of thing. And for me, it's just a fashion statement. So my mother covered her hair up, too, and she also wore wigs, and my grandmother wore wigs. And so it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Um, But they are doing something very normal, which is covering my hair became this big thing. And so I actually felt bad for people who, for women who are actually Muslim and have to like cover their hair up all the time for religious reasons, because I can only imagine, you know, the pushback they get um, and they deal with every day. And so hair and how you wear it or even cover it and how people react to it, it can be a symbol of racism. Uh yeah, definitely. It can be a symbol of racism and it, and also um, can be a symbol of uh, the beauty standards that just women in general have to live up to. And it's pretty tough to um, live up to 
standards that only um, fit to a certain small, very small percentage of people. And I think one of the most touching <clears throat> moments in the book is the first time you get your hair permed, and you already mentioned that. <laughs> touching moment, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of elements to it, including peer pressure from kids at school. But after it's done, you're in the car with your mother, and you notice her crying, almost as though there's been a loss. What does that scene mean in the context of this discussion we're having? Yeah, so how come the, um, that story is one of the... Um, real uh, um, autobiographical stories and so I that part where uh, that scene where my mother is crying for me I was trying to understand why she was crying so she uh, my mother died when I was 15 so I've never actually asked her about it so I was exploring that um, in that um, story and so I think it could be that um, getting a perm is also a symbol of getting older and wanting the attention from guys because, you know, straight hair is also the sexy hair kind of thing. And so for me to get straight hair um, might have meant that I was seeking that kind of attention, even though, you know, I was 11. So who knows? It probably wasn't. But um, so I think there's kind of um, my mother might have been crying because I I was growing up. Um, and then also... Um, there is an element of, I think, loss in, uh, in, in this understanding that black is beautiful too. When, um, when you straighten your hair and my, especially in my family, my mother always, I mean, my mother didn't always wear afros. I mean, she wore wigs, she straightened her hair. I mean, she did lots of different things to her hair, but, um, I think part of it was that she might have interpreted me straightening my hair as me internalizing this idea that my hair isn't beautiful the way it is. Mm. And there's another aspect of the book that's interesting to me, how you use hair as a passageway through a number of areas, family life, relationships, social interactions and dynamics. Does hair really play such a major role in everyday life? It does for black women. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like, I mean, yeah, it definitely does for, um, for black women, um, just a little side note. So I married to a, a white guy, and um, I remember one of the first nights we spent together. Um, I didn't put. I always wear my hair wrapped up and with a silk wrap, and black women know why. And it, the reason is because um, we want to keep our hair moisturized, and we don't want to. Um, we want to cause less breakage. So I wrap my hair at night and um, I didn't do it around him. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm going to have to explain this to him. And then so the first few nights um, I didn't wrap my hair. And then it got to the point where I just I was like, I, I have to tell you, I wrap my hair up every day. It's always covered every night. So I'm going to have to do that from now on if, if we're going to um, stick this out. So, Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I also briefly before we go want to touch on the cover of the book there's an illustration of a young girl entering a world with two goddess like women holding hot combs and big cities lurking in the background what's going on there so that's a spoof off of the one of my um, favorite stories growing up uh, movies growing up as a kid it's the never ending story the first one um, and there's a scene where uh, Atreyu has to walk 
um, pass these two statues, and um, he has to have confidence in himself. Um, and if he doesn't, the the two women will zap him. Mm. And so, I I just decided to um, take a tray you out and put a black girl in there because the movie didn't have many um, black characters um, in the film. So, so I did that and. So the girl, it's for the the reader to decide what's going to happen to the girl um, who who's trying to show that she has confidence in herself and in her hair. Thank you for joining me. Ebony, for having me. Ebony Flowers of Denver is the author and illustrator of Hot Comb, a graphic novel that captures her coming of age and life experiences viewed through the prism of hair. I gotta say, the newsroom felt a little empty this morning. There's a good reason for that. Half the show's staff is headed to Grand Junction, where we'll be broadcasting tomorrow and Friday from our studio on Main Street. My colleague Ryan Warner has a preview of this radio road trip. He sent this from along I-70. Hi, Avery. I'm recording this on my smartphone. I've pulled over in Silverthorne to refill my vat of coffee. This will be our second year taking the show to the Western Slope, and I'm really excited about the stories we have lined up. A special interview with the governor focused on the most pressing issues in the region, like diversifying the economy so it's not so vulnerable to the ups and downs of oil and gas. And yet, the governor's made some moves that are unpopular in the area, as we'll hear from a Mesa County commissioner. I'll also introduce you to a writer obsessed with Colorado's back roads. We'll meet atop the Grand Mesa, the largest flat-top mountain in the world. Plus, how the Grand Valley became a center for lavender. It's not just Provence in France. Uh, But for now, I'm going to get back on the road. All right, CPR's Ryan Warner on his way to Grand Junction. We'll broadcast live from our studio on Main Street tomorrow and Friday. And there are still tickets to our live event Friday night at the Avalon Theater. See Radio in the Making. Go to CPR.org for tickets. The Telluride Bluegrass Festival returns this weekend for its 46th year. And with it, the return of a short-lived but influential Colorado act, Broke Mountain Bluegrass Band. The quintet first played together in 2002. At that time, Dobro player Anders Beck was working at an acoustic instrument shop in Durango. These guys walked into the store and picked up instruments. It began to like really just shred them, but I was just amazed. And um, my initial reaction was, you know, who the heck are you guys? Those guys were a couple of young musicians from North Carolina who were in Colorado on a ski trip. Beck invited them to play with some of his friends, and after a pair of all-night jam sessions, Broke Mountain Bluegrass Band was formed. After playing together for just two months, Broke Mountain won the Rocky Grass Band Contest in Lions. The band followed that early success with a few short tours and festival gigs in Colorado, and they recorded their first and only album, Cabin in the Hills. Since splitting in 2005, the band members have gone on to become bluegrass royalty, joining such popular acts as Leftover Salmon and the infamous String Dusters. Anders Beck now plays in the quintet Green Sky Bluegrass, which has a three-night stint at Red Rocks this summer. He and his former bandmates had no idea how their careers would take off after Broke Mountain really crazy to think about because for us we're just 
five dudes in their early 20s hanging out in Colorado making music. You know, it turns out that it was actually this really special thing. Well, I begged and pleaded for you to take back. So let me on like four holes round round the track. Asked if I'd come over. Say, change your mind and I'd walk on the road bank. With you still on my mind. This weekend in Telluride will be the first time Broke Mountain Bluegrass Band has played together in 14 years. Beck says the festival is the perfect location for their long-anticipated reunion. It was a special place for them as young musicians. We would go to Telluride to the festival and like sneak in to the campground and play music all night long together. That was sort of our place. We would busk on the street. You know, literally, we'd have a guitar case out for money. Now I see you through your smile. Right down to your soul, nothing you love more than The bands that all of us are in now, if you think about the five of us busking on the streets of Telluride back then, pretty hilarious, right? You're through a throne in mine. Broke Mountain Bluegrass Band plays the Telluride Bluegrass Festival on Friday. And Beck says there's a chance you might also see the band busking somewhere in town. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.